Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. It's now my joy and honor to introduce our guest speaker this morning. Robert Holly was introduced to Arlington Street Church on Christmas Eve 1997, having then just moved to Boston. He attended services from time to time over the next few years and joined to become a pledging member of ASC in 2002. Reverend Kim officiated at the 2004 marriage to his husband Harlow here at ASC, and since that time he has served on the ministerial intern committee and will join the worship committee for the coming church year. Let's welcome Robert Holly. Thank you. Good morning. My Jesuit friend, Father Tom, called. Usually, he calls to report the latest rumors of my mental deterioration, drunkenness, or promiscuity. But this time, he called to wish me happy birthday. The Bush administration had just launched its war on Iraq, and it was playing out in real time on the television. How are we going to get through all of this craziness, I asked. There was silence for a moment. Then he said, left foot, right foot, left foot, breathe. We're listening to the voice of writer Anne Lamont. After we got off the phone, I had a few birthday chocolates. Then I asked God to help me to be helpful. I tried to cooperate with grace, which is to say, I did not turn on the TV. I asked God to help me again. Now, the problem with God, or at any rate, one of the top five most annoying things about God, is that he or she rarely answers prayers right away. It can take days, weeks. Some people seem to understand this, that life and change take time. So the morning of my birthday, because I couldn't pray, I did what Matisse once said to do. I don't know if I believe in God or not, but the essential thing is to put oneself in a frame of mind which is close to that of prayer. I closed my eyes, and I got quiet, and then I went to the store to buy my birthday dinner. We've all likely seen the bumper sticker, Grace Happens, but how does this work exactly? Does grace actually happen, or is grace simply there? Does it fall like rain, or is it arbitrarily handed down by some kind of celestial case manager on an as-needed basis? I don't know. But it's fair to say that there are perhaps as many different kinds of grace as there are people who've experienced it. My friend Miriam, Miriam Webster, tells me that grace is the free and unmerited favor or beneficence of God but I think there might be more to it than that. Here's a story of my own. 
My wife and I married in Colorado in 1972. We had met as freshmen in college and after graduating bought a little house and began our teaching careers in the public schools of Golden, a little town with a very big brewery just west of Denver. And things were pretty golden for a few years, but there was one persistent problem. As it turned out, I was gay, still am. But by 1978, I thought I was going nuts, and I certainly didn't want to admit to myself why. After six months or so of group therapy, I came out of the closet slowly. She and I still laughed together about this. I came out, and she moved to San Francisco. <laughs> I moved to New York City. Our uncoupling had been tearful, but loving and amicable. She's still one of my closest friends. We spoke on the phone from coast to coast often, but we did not see each other for more than a year. I think we had not really wanted to actually finalize the divorce. It seemed, well, so final. But eventually we did, and we decided to meet in New York at Christmas time to put a bookend on our decade together. We went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art to see the Baroque Christmas tree and talked. We had lunch at the Stanhope Hotel on Fifth Avenue, and we talked. And we walked and walked, and we talked and talked. And on the coldest Christmas night imaginable, we went down to the village to see a new off-Broadway play. It was Tally's Folly, a beautiful, bittersweet, heartbreaking love story by Lanford Wilson that would win the Pulitzer Prize the next spring. It was perfect. I was working in the theater, so it probably goes without saying that I was poor. It goes with the territory. And to save money, I was living uptown, way, way uptown, at 168th Street and Riverside Drive. The apartment I shared was big. The rent was affordable. The cockroaches came free. Don't forget, New York City was in dire financial straits in 1980. The subway system was literally falling apart. There was no heat in many of the cars, and some of the windows were either broken or missing. So by the time we had gone from 14th Street to 168th Street on a train making local stops only, we were frozen. It was late at night with a bitterly cold Hudson River wind, even in the station. We got off the train and we walked toward the exit platform, arm in arm, cheek to cheek, talking about the play and about life, I guess. As we were getting off the train, I had noticed that there was a lone passenger standing in the last car as we walked by. Not unusual, it was late, not many people on the train. I remember thinking how grateful I was to not be alone on Christmas. As the train was leaving the station, all of a sudden there was this very, very loud sound, probably the loudest sound I have ever heard. At the same time, I felt something very, very hot next to my head. It felt and sounded like a mini sonic boom. Whatever it was, it was moving as fast as a speeding bullet. I remember thinking it must have been a bolt or something that had suddenly come loose from the train as we heard it ricochet off the exit sign at the end of the platform. I had sort of stumbled mid-stride, and I put my hand to the side of my head to silence the ringing in my ear as the sound reverberated off the tile walls of the subway station. When I looked, my glove had blood on it, and Sarah saw that I was bleeding behind my right ear. It all happened so fast it was hard to understand. There was no, else, no one else in the station, 
Even the toll booth was closed. We both, been, we both then realized that we'd been shot at by someone sticking a gun out the broken window of the last car as it was pulling out of the station. Perfect getaway. Now remember, we'd been walking tightly bundled together cheek to cheek. The bullet had passed through the inch or two of space between our heads, grazing me just under my right ear. Don't believe anyone who says that a flesh wound to the head from a bullet is no big deal. <laughs> had we been half a step forward, or if the gun's trajectory had been ever so slightly different, the bullet would probably have taken a good part of my head, or hers, with it. I'm happy to report that it didn't. Grace has no waiting period. Where were we? Oh, yes. Um, Anne Lamont is still in line at the supermarket buying dinner. She tells us, when the checker had finished ringing up my items, she looked at my receipt and said, hey, you've won a ham. <laughs> I felt blindsided with the news. I had asked God for help, not a ham. <laughs> this was very disturbing. What on earth was I going to do with 10 pounds of salty pink eraser? <laughs> I rarely eat it. It makes you bloat. Wow, I said. The checker was so excited about giving it to me that I pretended I was too. I almost suggested that the checker award the ham to the next family who paid with food stamps. But for some reason I waited. If God was giving me a ham, I'd be crazy not to accept it. Maybe it was the ham of God that takes away the sins of the world. <laughs> I waited for ten minutes for what I began to think of as that effing ham. And finally, the bag boy returned and handed me a wrapped parcel the size of a cat. I put it with feigned cheer into my grocery cart, and I walked to my car trying to figure out who might need it. I was so distracted that I crashed my cart into a rusting wreck of a car in the parking lot. I started to apologize when I noticed that an old friend was at the wheel. We had gotten sober together a long time ago. She opened her window. Hey, I said, how are you? It's my birthday. Happy birthday, she said, and started crying. She looked drained and pinched, and after a moment, she pointed to her gas gauge. I don't have any money for gas or food. I've never asked for help from a friend since I got sober, but I'm asking for you to help me. I've got money, I said. No, no, she said, I just need gas. I've never asked anyone for a handout. It's not a handout, I told her. It's my birthday present. I thrust a bunch of money into her hand, and then I reached down into my shopping cart and held the ham out to her like a clown offering a bunch of flowers. Hey, I said, do you and your kids like ham? We love it. We love it for every meal. She put it in the seat beside her firmly, lovingly, as if she were about to strap it in. And she cried some more, and we kissed goodbye through her window. Walking back to my car, I thought about the seasonal showers in the desert, how the potholes and the rocks fill up with rain. When you look afterward, there are already frogs in the water and brine shrimp reproducing like commas doing the Macarena. And it seems, but only seems, that we went from parched to overflow in the blink of an eye. Grace has no waiting period.
One last story that I heard a long time ago. So it's this beautiful sunny day, and a young family is out for a Sunday afternoon drive in the mountains. Dad's behind the wheel, mom's on the passenger side, holding her treasured two-year-old in her lap. The picnic lunches in the back seat as they make their way up a steep one-lane road to a favorite stopping place further up the mountain. Without warning, a pickup truck suddenly comes around a curve, going down the hill too fast to stop in order to yield, and then it just keeps going. Fortunately, there's a guardrail, but it's not strong enough, and the family car goes through the middle railing before bouncing down a rocky hillside into a wooded ravine. In time, the people in the next two or three cars coming up the road stopped, to see, stopped when they see what's happened and together set about climbing down to try to see if everyone's all right. It was 1952, long before cell phones, EMTs, or seatbelts even. So down in the ravine, the driver's stumbling around a bit, dazed, but has no lacerations, no broken bones, no real injuries to speak of. But the mother is still in the car, the guardrail having come through the passenger window and piercing her right arm just below her shoulder and pinning her to the seat. In addition to the broken bones, the sharp metal scrapes away almost all of the tendons and muscles in her upper arm. She sort of recovers after several surgeries, but will wear a half-body cast for more than a year, and she will be disfigured and largely disabled in her right arm for the rest of her life. But what about the baby? As the story goes, the two-year-old child is found a few feet or so away from the ruined car, sitting upright, crying as might be expected, but otherwise unhurt. No bruises, no scratches, nothing. Just dirt. Did I mention that my father was an alcoholic? Or that he was driving the car? Or that I was the baby thrown clear of the wreck? Grace has no waiting period. My earliest memory is hearing my mother's moans and seeing the brilliant sunlight coming in the tall windows of the hospital as I waited for myself, by myself amidst the commotion. I remember the walls were a funny green. My mother would tell me this story many, many times as I was growing up. Each time, she would describe what had happened in painful detail, but the words alcohol, drinking, or drunk were never, ever mentioned, ever. When I was 25, my father would die one night of a massive heart attack just after he'd put on his pajamas. My mother's mother would die a week later, and my mother would live alone with her beloved dog, Jeffrey, mostly as a recluse, for the rest of her life, another 15 years. In one of my last conversations with her before she died, I hadn't really planned to ask if Pop had been drinking that day so long ago. She sighed, and after a heavy pause, quietly said yes. It would be many years before I would realize that there was no truck coming down the mountain. They hadn't been forced off the road. He had been drinking, 
driving carelessly, had simply lost control of the car. It was a story concocted to keep the secret a secret from me. In meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous all over the world, you'll often see bright yellow and blue banners made of felt hanging on the walls. It's just like the blue and gold banners I remember from the Cub Scouts, only really, really different. <laughs> Slogans intended to comfort and inspire, a day at a time, surrender to win, live and let live, or my favorite, but for the grace of God. I don't know exactly what happened on that day in May 2002 when I realized that either I had to stop drinking or I was going to die, but I know now that it was grace. I had been drinking for 30 years. I was used to pain and confusion. Pain and confusion were hardy companions who had been with me ever since I could remember. But suddenly, all I wanted was for the pain to stop. Believe me when I say getting sober was certainly not my idea. Since that time, I've been to hundreds of meetings, have made many good friends who I've come to love, and I've made a start at growing my spirit. And I can honestly say that not for a moment have I seriously considered having a drink again since that day in May that my head hit the desktop and I mumbled, God, help me, I don't know what to do. In AA, grace is what it's all about, and I think Anne Lamont says it best. I do not at all understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. Grace is the force that infuses our lives and keeps letting us off the hook. It is unearned love, the love that goes before, that greets us on the way. It's the help you receive when you have no bright ideas left, when you are desperate and have discovered that your best thinking and your most charming charm have failed you. Grace is the light or electricity or breeze that takes you from that isolated place and puts you with others who are as, as startled and as embarrassed and eventually as grateful as you are to be there. Don't leave before the miracle happens is something you hear often in AA meetings. The miracle may take a while, but the grace is immediate. Most of us don't know that at the time. How does it work? I truly don't know. But then, I don't need to know. I have only to allow myself to be grateful and receive it at the intersection of grace and miracle. Let me close with this from novelist Willa Cather. Where there is great love, there are always miracles. Miracles rest not so much on faces or voices or healing power coming to us from afar off, but on our perceptions being made finer so that for a moment, our eyes can see and our ears can hear what is there about us always. Blessed be. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at or through our Facebook page. 
If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.